As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, who shall prepare thy way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Mark 1, 2 to 3. It is a foundational belief of our Christian faith that life is founded upon the bedrock of our participation within scripture and tradition. Yet how many of us can say that we have an understanding of what these two terms mean regarding the way we live our lives? How many of us can say we've seriously read the scriptures and wrestled alongside those who have devoted their lives to understanding the depth of their meaning? And ultimately, what did these texts written over 2,000 years ago have to say to us living in the 21st century? These, among many others, are the questions we will be wrestling with in this weekly Bible study. My name is Nick Botsolis, and I invite all of you to join our St. John the Baptist community as we set out to meet Christ in the scriptures. And by wrestling with these texts and searching for their meaning in our lives, it is my hope that we, like John the Baptist, and all of the saints who have come before us may continue to make his path straight. Hello everyone and welcome back to another session of our St. John the Baptist Bible study, Make His Path Straight. My name is Nick Botsolis and once again I'm happy to have you all here with me as we're now beginning a new book within our journey through the scriptures. Thank you all for your participation as we went through St. Luke's account of the gospel and now we're going to transition into his account of the Acts of the Apostles. So, a little preamble on the Acts of the Apostles. It's similar, since it was written by the same author uh, in theme. There's going to, again, be this focus on physical works, as we're going to see in the works of the Apostles. And the difference lies in the pivot from Christ's ministry to now the ministry of his followers. And we're going to see that this ministry is fueled, if you will, by the Holy Spirit, which in chapter 2 will descend upon the church. Now, the Holy Spirit was already spoken of within St. Luke's account of the gospel. Uh, there was an emphasis on it that we saw within chapter one, chapter two, and also chapter three. And subtly, St. Luke has been leading us to the reality of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, working within the church all throughout this gospel narrative. And now we're going to see the Holy Spirit more explicitly spoken of. So what we're going to see as we go into the introduction of the Acts of the Apostles is a similar dedication as we saw at the beginning of St. Luke's Count of the Gospel. This is a unique beginning that we see with St. Luke because Matthew, Mark, and John don't have an introduction in the same way, a dedication rather. And I'd say another major theme we need to keep our eye on as we're beginning the gospel, or rather the acts, is going to be the works of the church itself. And what I mean by that is as we see the apostles carrying out what Christ has been calling them to do all along, they are acting as the church. And in doing so, they're making Christ manifest in the world, even though he's no longer physically with them. As we might remember from the final chapter of St. Luke's account of the gospel, we were told that Christ's presence is known within the breaking of the bread. So within the Eucharistic context of the church, the presence of Christ will continue to be known. Another thing to be aware of with St. Luke's Acts of the Apostles is, roughly speaking, there are two textual traditions. And what I mean by that is there are two texts um, that we see within the various manuscripts that come up consistently. Now, I know there is the Byzantine text and there are others, but primarily speaking for St. Luke's Acts, we see two distinct texts that have subtle differences, known as both the Western text and the Alexandrian text. So within the Western text, what we see is there's a added 10% of the narrative. 
Now, something that's unique that happens there is there isn't really any contradiction or added content within the Western text versus the shorter Alexandrian text. Rather, what we see is subtle emphases, subtle differences. And the best case that I've heard as to why these two text traditions exist and have continued to exist alongside one another is that the Alexandrian text is like a first draft that St. Luke did. And when that first draft was circulating throughout the church, that's what continued to be copied and what continued to be passed around. In the same way as when his second draft, which holds some revisions, came out, that is the Western text, that one also continued to circulate throughout the church. And we see both being used within the tradition of the church to this very day, which is something that's very distinct because we see that even though there are these two text traditions that seem to differ, they have both been received into the church. Now, we're going to be using the Alexandrian text as we're going through this Bible study for ease, because we're going to stick with the Revised Standard Version of the Bible. Again, the only reason that I chose to go with the Alexandrian text is because we've been using the RSV all along, so why change to King James Version or something like that now? So whenever I think it's important to highlight some of the differences between the Western text and the Alexandrian text, I'll do what I can to make that known. But again, the differences that we see there aren't theological difference, differences, and they're also not differences in terms of, how you say, um, differences in chapter length or anything like that. Rather, they're little subtle revisions that help the narrative to play out. And we also see some emphases, like on the role of St. Peter and so on. So none of these differences that we see between the two rough text traditions contradict one another. Rather, the Western text seems to build further upon what we see in the Alexandrian and what we know as our Byzantine corpus, that's the corpus we use liturgically, is kind of a blending of the two. So again, I know there are a lot of different codexes, and I'm by no means an expert in this. Um, so if I miss something here, that's because, again, I only know this rough overview. However, I think it's important for us to be aware of the fact that, roughly speaking, there are these two textual traditions. So that way, if you're reading the King James Version, and you notice that there's added content that wasn't here as we were going through the Vine Sanders Day version, then you know why. So with all of that preamble and my rambling out of the way, I promise you, first of all, that I'm going to try to stay on target a little bit more as we go through this book. I know I got off track a lot within the end of St. Luke's Gospel account. So with all my rambling out of the way, I'm going to attempt to keep us on target, keep us going through the text itself, and try to see what it is that Christ is trying to reveal to us sitting here, here in the, gospel, in the Acts of the Apostles. So with all of that out of the way, let's begin chapter 1, verse 1 of Acts. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commandment through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To them he presented himself alive after his passion by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking of the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he charged them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, 
but before many days you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So here we see in verse 1, there's a dedication once again. And that dedication is to this Theophilus, or blessed Theophilus, as we saw within the beginning of St. Luke's Count of the Gospel. Now, we spoke about this when we opened up the Gospel narrative, but this Theophilus, we don't know who he is. Uh, the assumption that we can make is that he sponsored St. Luke's writing of the Gospel, and as well as the second volume that we're starting, and that's why St. Luke is dedicating the text to him. There are other reasons why his name could be here, because Theophilus means lover of God or friend of God. So we can look at this and realize that Theophilus, the name itself, is also in reference to all of us, because we're lovers of God and we're friends of God. That's what we're being called to. Now, that doesn't negate the reality of a person named Theophilus who commissioned this narrative to be written. However, it is just another example of an added layer that we can use to understand how to read and approach the scriptures. So when we hear that St. Luke begins his account by basically going over everything that was spoken of prior. So he tells Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commandment through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So what do we see here? Well, we see that Jesus has carried out his whole ministry. And St. Luke is pointing us back to his prior account. And throughout his entire ministry, he's been building up his church. He's been building up those who are going to now follow after him. And we see that through the Holy Spirit, these apostles whom he had chosen are being sent out. Because again, we need to remember the word apostle means the one who is being sent out, the one who is being sent out into the nations. So the role of these apostles all along has been to receive what Jesus has been revealing to us. And now that the time has come where the Spirit is about to dwell in them, they're meant to be sent out to preach the gospel, this good news of Christ's victory over death, to the nations. And we see him continue this in verse 3, because he says, To them he presented himself alive after his passion by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days. So St. Luke didn't give us a time frame of Christ's ascension within the end of his gospel narrative. Yet here we see that over the span of 40 days, Jesus was appearing to the disciples. And... As he was doing that, what was he doing? Well, he was speaking to them of the kingdom of God, the kingdom that had come with the coming of the Messiah, but now is being fully made manifest as Christ has risen from the dead. And we see in verse 4, well, he was staying with them. He charges them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. This promise was spoken of earlier in St. Luke's Count the Gospel. And yet now Jesus continues to re-emphasize the point that he made prior. And he tells them, uh, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but before many days you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So as a little refresher, the baptism of John, well, what was the point of his baptism? Well, it was a baptism in preparation. It was preparatory. It was towards the remission of sins. And the reason why John was offering this preparatory baptism was because that was the mode by which God chose to prepare his people for the coming of Christ. Now that Christ has come, he's taught, he's lived, he's died, and now he's risen from the dead after trampling down death by itself, we see that there's an added layer coming. 
And that added layer is going to be the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Holy Trinity, who is going to now descend and dwell in all flesh. So the Holy Spirit, for added context, has been present throughout the entire account of the scriptures. We know the Holy Spirit as the presence of God. So the presence of God that dwelled within the tabernacle, within the temple, that left before the Babylonian exile, that presence is the Spirit of God. We also know that this third person, the Trinity, appeared leading the Israelites as a pillar of fire through the wilderness. And so there are multiple citations that point to this third hypothesis, this third person of the Holy Trinity throughout the entire Old Testament. And now that we have arrived in the New Testament and Christ has risen, we see how the Spirit has been working throughout the church all along. Because the Spirit has also dwelled within the prophets. The Spirit has been what has animated the prophets. So that way they could speak the word of God. Because again, everything that the prophets are teaching and preaching is not of themselves. It's not of their own intellect. Rather, it's fueled by the Spirit of God. And they have fully allowed for that spirit to dwell within them and align their will with his. So it's not like they're being taken over and they're becoming these passive vessels as the spirit dwells in them and takes them over. Rather, they have fully aligned their will with the will of God. And that has allowed for the spirit to dwell and manifest within them. We also see the Spirit dwelling in kings within the Old Testament. And yet we also see, like with Samuel, the Spirit, or Saul rather, uh, we see the Spirit descending and dwelling in kings for a while in prophets, and then the Spirit will also leave. And this kind of shows us this motif of the Spirit going where the Spirit wills. Because again, we can't really confine God into a systematic box. God's will is greater than our will. We try to comprehend God's will. However, at the end of the day, God's will is beyond ours because we can't factor in all of the factors that God can account for. So even though things seem to happen that are beyond our understanding, there's always a reason for them. Like we can always dig deeper and deeper However, on their face, they might seem absurd or strange. Yet all of this is pointing towards what's coming because the baptism of John did not bestow the spirit upon all flesh. Rather, the baptism of John was in preparation for the coming of Christ. But now that Christ has come and offered his life for the life of the world, we see through baptism that there's not only this motif of death and rebirth that's taking place. Because again, that's what's symbolized within the baptismal rite. In this descent into water, we see a descent into chaos because water symbolically represents chaos. And as we descend into this chaos and reemerge, what happens is we're passing through death, symbolically speaking, into new life. And in that same vein, that's the motif of baptism. Baptism is dying to a life of sin, having it washed away, and reemerging into a new life. And yet, what makes Christian baptism distinct is within that baptism, baptismal rite, we see the Spirit descending upon us. We see the seal of the Holy Spirit within humanity. And that doesn't confine the spirit exclusively to baptism, as we'll see in later chapters of Acts, because the spirit is at play in all of humanity. For those of us who are outside of the church or at one point lived outside of the church, it is the spirit of God that has led us to the church. 
So even though, yes, we know through baptism, chrismation, and Holy Communion, the Spirit is present and the Spirit is descending upon us, we also can't say where the Spirit is not. Because the Spirit of God is constantly at play within the whole of creation, whether we realize it or not. So that's something for us to realize as we're moving on in, in the next chapter, we'll see the descent of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is constantly at play within salvation history, but we see this emphasis within St. Luke's account of Acts made over and over again. And as we pay attention to it, we'll see not only how the Spirit works within the narrative here that we're going through, but then we'll be able to gain added context to how the Spirit works within the church today, within each and every one of our lives guiding us towards a life in Christ. So moving on to verse 6. So when they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said this, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same manner, at, in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So what do we see here? Well, we see that as the church comes together, as the disciples all surround Jesus, they ask him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So we need to understand what's going on here. This is not similar to how the apostles were asking Jesus about his kingdom prior. And we see that within their reference to him as Lord, because Kyrios, Lord, is the name given to God within the Old Testament. So here they're referring to him as he truly is. They have seen that he is risen. They understand that he's now more than a man. So they're no longer looking at him exclusively as an earthly Messiah. I know that's a lot to read of one word, but that's where we're lying here. So in the reference to Jesus as Lord, we see this recognition of him being greater than this earthly king. The concept of Messiah has now been fulfilled. And yet, when they ask if at this time will you restore the kingdom to Israel, what are they asking for? Well, they're asking for a kingdom of peace. Yes, a worldly kingdom, but ultimately a kingdom which is ruled by God. They're ultimately looking at Jesus as the Lord. So they're not looking for an earthly king as we see within the book of Chronicles and kingdoms. Rather, they're looking for a kingdom that is ruled by God. It's for this reason that Jesus doesn't rebuke them. Rather, he says, it's not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria until the ends of the earth. So what does this mean? Well, again, Jesus is very subtly changing the way that the apostles are thinking about all of this. The kingdom, which is being made manifest, the kingdom of God, is not a kingdom of a specific geographical area. Rather, the kingdom of God, as we see through the will of the Lord, is made manifest through the church acting as church, 
fueled and led by the Holy Spirit. And it's through their actions or acts, as we're going to see as church, that the kingdom will be made manifest through their witness. Their witness, which is not only fueled by what they've seen, because again, the apostles are the ones who have seen Jesus and his ministry all along. But it's fueled by the true sight which they are given through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so in giving witness, what they're going to do starting from Jerusalem all the way until the ends of the earth is preach the gospel, the good news of Christ's victory over death to all of the nations, whether they be Jew or Gentile. No longer is the kingdom of God constrained to one geographical area. It is through the Spirit. Now the kingdom has gone out into all the ends of the earth. And through the Spirit, we're going to see that the apostles are sent out and guided and strengthened as they carry out their ministry. And so we hear that as Jesus is saying this, as they're looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. So what does this mean? Well, as we see the ascension of Christ, or what we know as the ascension of Christ, suddenly Jesus is taken out of their sight. This doesn't mean that he kind of slowly goes off into the sky somewhere until he blips out of existence. Rather, as we see within the iconographic tradition of Christ's ascension, where is he? Well, if we look at the icon, he's within this little almond-looking thing called a mandola. And whenever you see that little almond shape, what that means is that the icon iconographer is trying to reveal to us something which can't be perceived by human eyes. And we see this further with the arrival of these men, these angelic beings. Because the way that they arrive, well, as they're gazing into heaven, so Jesus has now disappeared from their midst, suddenly, as we see in the word behold, two men stood by them in white robes. So in the same way that Jesus disappears from their sight, suddenly these angels, dis these angels appear, rather. And... Again, within their robes, so the color of their robes, that's what identifies them as being angelic messengers of the Lord. And in response to everything that's happened, as the disciples are staring off into heaven, what do the angels say? Well, they say, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So we need to look at Jesus being taken up in the cloud because that tells us where he's going. Yes, heaven has been referred to, but what is heaven? Well, heaven is being in the presence of the Godhead, the presence of the Lord. And in Jesus being taken up in the cloud, we see that he's enveloped into the glory of God. This is a symbol that we see over and over again throughout the scriptures. And yet, in Jesus being enveloped into the glory of God, well, what do we see? Well, we see another callback to a concept that was spoken of throughout St. Luke's account of the gospel. Because within his account of the gospel, we heard St. Luke over and over again referring to Christ as the Son of Man. And the Son of Man reference was calling back to the seventh chapter of the book of Daniel, where there was one scene like a son of man who was seated in the glory of the Father, or the glory of God, rather. So the son of man language was used over and over again to point towards the ascension of Christ and the glory where he'd be seated. And so now, as the cloud comes and envelops him, well, that tells us this is where he now is. He is now truly in the presence of the Father. 
until the time of his parousia, of his presence, because that's what parousia means. I know often you'll be reading books and the term parousia is thrown around, but it really just means the presence. So the parousia, the presence, the second coming of Christ is going to be the same as the way that he disappeared, as the angels tell us. And within one of Jesus' eschatological um, sayings and passages within St. Luke's account of the gospel, we were already told that this was going to be the case. He told us, like lightning flashing from one sky of the heavens to the other, so will be the return of the Son of Man. And so what we're told by that is that when Christ comes again, it's going to be unmistakable. His presence is going to be known by all. And I think it's important for us to kind of wrestle here with an aspect of reality that we see, which is why did Christ leave us? And the answer to this question lies in the belief of the church of the first century. Because the belief of the church that we're soon going to see isn't that Jesus left and now what, as I've been guilty of thinking in the past. It's very easy for us to fall into the trap of thinking, okay, well, these people follow Jesus. And then all of a sudden, Jesus is no longer with them. So that's when they start to come up with these theologies and try to figure out, okay, how do we explain everything that transpired during these times? And yet, that's neglecting the reality of the spirit within the church. That's neglecting the reality of everything that Jesus has taught and preached to them up until this point. Because when, as we see in the next section, the disciples return to Jerusalem, they're going to do this with joy. They're not going to do this with sadness or lament because Christ has risen and now he's ascended and he's, seating, he's seated rather in this place of glory. So if that's the case, we see within the actions of the church that they truly believe that Christ is with them. He's not with them in the same way. He's not physically sitting with them any longer. Because again, Christ is in the glory of the Father. And yet, as they come together as church, they know him in the breaking of the bread. As they live their life in this age, while simultaneously not being of this age, when the Spirit comes, the Spirit will be their comforter. The Spirit will be their guide. And again, if Father, Son, and Spirit are one in essence and inseparable. Where the Spirit is, there is the Father and the Son. Where the Son is, there is the Father and the Spirit. All of these apply because ultimately we're being directed towards the kingdom of the Father, where Christ now is seated. In glory, as was prefigured throughout the entirety of St. Luke's Gospel account. So that's something important for us to wrap our head around because Again, we can often fall into the trap of trying to remove Christ and God in particular from the way that the church was developed. And yet we see here in the very beginning of the church that Christ is at the very bedrock. His presence is known to the first century church. And subsequently, we sitting here in the 21st century also experience the presence of Christ whenever we celebrate the Eucharist. So Christ is truly in our midst. And we need to try to wrap our head around this reality. Because it's hard for us to understand this. It's hard for us to see him in the way that he's interacting with us within our life. And yet, that's why the Spirit is at play. Because the Spirit is there subtly leading us to his embrace, subtly trying to reveal him to us. And as we align our will with the will of the Lord in our actions and the way we conduct ourselves, 
and the way overall that we live. Well, as we continue to move in parallel with the will of the Lord, well, then we begin to make the kingdom manifest in the same way that the apostles are called to. So moving on to the final section of this week's chapter, this one's a pretty short one, with verse 12. And they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord devoted themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. <clears throat> Actually, I think we can stop here, and then we can break down a little bit more. So what happens immediately after Jesus is ascended? Well, we hear that the church moves off to Jerusalem. So we see that all of this took place at the Mount of Olives the same place where Jesus was betrayed, the same place where as they were all staying in Jerusalem before they had the upper room, they were staying with Jesus every night. And we're told again that this was a Sabbath day's journey. And why is that important? Well, that shows us that even though the law has been fulfilled, we see that the church is still living by the strictures of the law. They're keeping the Levitical law and not traveling on the Sabbath. So they're staying within the confines of travel that were spoken of for the Jewish people. And this is important to realize because, again, we need to remember that Christ is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And this is something that's going to be wrestled with a lot within the Acts of the Apostles. Because the church is going to try to figure out, well, what does that mean? Like, what do we need to have people do? And we're going to see this specifically in the keeping of the dietary restrictions of the Torah, as well as circumcision. There's going to be a major debate that comes up towards the middle of the Acts of the Apostles. But it's important for us to see here that the church is continuing to participate in this Jewish reality. We're going to see that the church isn't going to become this separate thing that exists outside of the temple and outside of Judaism altogether. Rather, it's going to be seen as a sect of Judaism because as we see from our liturgical practice, much of what we do aligns with what already existed within the Jewish tradition. Our practice of Vespers and Orthros, that is nightly prayers and morning prayers, is directly connected with the Jewish process. Our liturgical day, beginning with the setting of the sun, ties to that of the Levitical law. And we're going to see the church grow in the same manner. So this is just important for us to realize because I think now that we're sitting here 2,000 years detached from these events, it's easy to see Judaism and Christianity as two distinct and separate things, which realistically speaking, here 2,000 years later, they are. However, within this first century context, the entire church consists of Jews, both ethnically and religiously. It's going to be the anomaly when the Gentiles start to come in after the Spirit has been poured out on all flesh. And so it's important for us to remember that, again, the church exists within this Jewish context. And it will, from Jerusalem, then be preached to all nations as the gospel is spread by the apostles. And these apostles are identified here. So we see Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, 
James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. Notice that Judas Iscariot is not here. So there are now 11. The 11 apostles are all who are left. And we see in addition to them, in verse 14, that there were women together with them. These could be seen as the women who saw Christ risen, the ones who had been traveling with him and ministering to him all throughout his Galilean ministry up to and through his death and resurrection, as well as Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now, this is the first reference to Mary that we've seen since the second chapter of St. Luke's Half of the Gospel. And we are told that with Mary, we have Jesus' brothers. So we have the family of Jesus. St. James, who will be the first bishop of Jerusalem, who we're going to see within later accounts of Acts, is one of these brothers. And again, the way that we understand these brothers isn't that they're the children of Mary by blood, because Christ is her only begotten son. However, Joseph was an old man when he married Mary. He had prior marriages and prior children. And in fact, we see within many of the nativity icons, this tradition of St. James, the first bishop of Jerusalem, leading the donkey that Mary is sitting on. So within our tradition, we see that there's this understanding that there are these other siblings of Jesus. And these siblings, again, aren't children of Mary, but rather they're children of Joseph. And it's these same brothers that didn't understand who Jesus was, who thought he was crazy, as we saw back in the beginning section of St. Luke's account of the gospel. And yet, in the same way that the apostles fell away and these brothers fell away, now that Christ is risen, they get it. They've come back. And in doing so, they're now acting as the church and picking up where they've left off, carrying the cross that they were called to carry all along. And this is important for us because, again, this is a reminder that even though it's easy for us to fall away, and at times in our life, we're going to miss the mark. We're going to fall short of doing everything that Christ is calling us to do. Even though that's the case, we can always get back on track. Even though that's the case, as we see in the example of the apostles, the brothers of Christ, and all of his followers, generally speaking, even though they all fall away for a moment, when they're truly called to do what it is that they're called to do, to offer the whole of their life, what do they do? Well, they take on that task joyfully. They pray together and devote themselves to the Lord as one. And this is what we're talking about when we're saying that we need to act as the church. We need to act as one accord. We need to carry on together in ministry. Because a life in Christ is not something that we do in isolation. It's not something that we do cut off from one another. Because it's a gift being offered to the whole of creation. This doesn't mean that we get up on a soapbox and we start evangelizing and yelling at people that they need to repent and join Christ. Rather, the way that we preach, the way that we evangelize is through our actions, our actions of love. Because it's through those actions that we make Christ manifest in the world. And it's through those actions that ultimately the glory of God is seen by those who don't know him. So moving on to verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brethren. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brethren, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who was guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us 
and was allotted his share in the ministry. Now this man bought a field with the reward of his wickedness. In falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all of his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in the language Alkedema, that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his habitation become desolate, and let there be no one to live in it. In his office, let another take. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward to Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Lord, who knowest the heart of all men, show which one of these two thou hast chosen to take the place in the ministry and the apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was enrolled with the eleven apostles. So here we see that Peter, who we need to remember, fell away. He was the one who was so zealous and said that he was going to be with Jesus to the very end. And yet, when the time of Jesus' passion came, through the accusations of three individuals, he fled. He ran off into the darkness with tears. This same Peter, who Jesus prefigured would return, has now returned. He has returned to strengthen the brethren, as Jesus told him he had to. And we're told that the company of persons that was there, so the church, is about 120 people. So it's about 120 people crammed into the upper room, waiting and praying for the Spirit to send when Peter's saying all of this. So Peter addresses them and says, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David, concerning Judas, who is guide to those who rest Jesus. Now we see when he says, which the Holy Spirit had spoken beforehand by the mouth of David, Here's a revelation of what we spoken of earlier, of how the Holy Spirit has already been working within the scriptures all along. Because the Spirit has been what has been animating the minds of the prophets and the tongues of the prophets as they've been writing the prophetic works. Now we're going to take a break from this prophecy of David as Peter for the next couple of verses, tells us what happened to Judas. Yet, we see in verse 17 that Peter recognizes that Judas was munger, num, numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. So even though Judas has thrown away the gift which he was given, that doesn't negate the gift. He was still numbered among the twelve. And his share of the ministry was to be an apostle, was to be sent out so that way he could welcome others in as he proclaimed to them the gospel, the good news of now that we see the resurrection of Christ. This was the call of Judas all along. And yet Judas decided to trade that call. He decided to trade the glory of a life in Christ for money. He betrays Christ in exchange. He's given money, mammon, the things of this age. And now when we get into verse 18, where we hear now this man bought a field with the reward of his wickedness. This doesn't mean that Judas went out after he betrayed Jesus and said, you know what I'm going to do with this money? I'm going to go and I'm going to buy a field right now. Signs the contract, gets the field, all of a sudden it's his. That's not at all what's happening here. Rather, the way that Judas buys this field is with 
the proceeds that he received for betraying Christ. He's portrayed Christ's blood by offering him up. And in exchange, what does he receive? Well, he receives mammon, the things of this age, the money of this age. So he buys that which is of this age. And we see in the description of what happens to him that this purchase is marked in explicit detail because we hear in falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all of his bowels gushed out. A very graphic description. But why is this there? Well, it's to show us that in killing himself, Judas has thrown away all of the gifts he's been given. He's not only betrayed Christ, but he's fallen into despair to the point where he throws away the gift of his own life. And by falling headlong and bursting open in this field, well, that's where the purchase is solidified. It's not only with the blood of Christ that he takes the money and purchases this field. So he purchases mammon by mammon. But he ultimately seals this purchase with his own blood, permanently leaving himself in the state. And this is such a dramatic thing that we hear that the place becomes known in all of Judea as Alkalima, the field of blood. And the reason for this, now Peter gets to his quotation of Psalm 69, is because David said in his prophecy, let his habitation become desolate and let there be no one to live in it. So what does that mean? Well, what are the consequences for portraying Christ in this dramatic manner? Well, you're sealing yourself to this desolate place, this place devoid of people. And this is exactly what Judas has done. Judas has betrayed Christ. He's cast off the true riches that were offered to him for the things of this age, which we've been talking about is fading. Because again, that motif's important because the Messianic age is now here. The Messianic age is marked by the resurrection of Christ. And now as the spirit dwells within us, each and every one of us sitting here today is in the end times. So we're not looking to some future date which is coming where all of a sudden we're going to see these cataclysms happening and that's going to mark the end times. Rather, now that Christ has ascended, after he has risen, we are in the end times. This is what St. Paul means when he says that we are to be in this age but not of this age, because this age is now rapidly fading away. And as we act as church, what do we do? Well, we make the age which has come, that is the messianic age, manifest in the world. And yet, when we isolate ourselves from Christ and utterly reject him, as we see Judas do, well, our habitation becomes desolate. And there's no one who lives in it because everyone else is passing on into the kingdom. When we, out of a desire to keep the things that we have, have stayed behind. And yet we hear in the second Psalm that's quoted, Psalm 109, his office let another take. So even though Judas has thrown away the gift that was given to him, it is still the call of God that the 12 apostles sit on the 12 tribes of Israel, ruling justly over the nations. And so for this reason, Peter is getting up and he says, we need to choose another person. There's only 11 of us right now. So we need to bring in the 12th. And here he gives the stipulations of what will make this candidate a member of the apostles. And the stipulations are that this individual had to see all that Jesus had done, beginning from the baptism of John till the day he was taken up from us, 
one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So again, what's the role of the apostles? Well, the role of the apostles is to go out and give witness to all that they have seen and experienced, which ultimately is going to be fueled by the Holy Spirit. That's why we don't have an order of apostle within the church. Rather, the apostles existed at the beginning of the church, and they served a very distinct role, a role that is now carried out by the bishops and the priests and all of us who are living in their succession. So it's their witness that continues to be made manifest within the church, guided by the Holy Spirit. And yet it was their role as the Twelve to be sent out to give witness to all the nations, spreading the witness of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so we see to choose for these two, rather for this one, they call two men. So one is Joseph called Barsabbas, whose surname Justice, and the other is Matthias. And we see here how the church acts because they don't sit down and say, all right, here's a popularity contest. It's time for us to judge who's going to be the new apostle. All right. I really like Joseph. So you see a bunch of hands go up and they all debate until they get a unanimous decision. That's not exactly how this plays out. Rather, they put the will into the hands of God. And so they begin to pray. So rather than sitting down and saying, all right, this is who I think is supposed to be the new apostle, they pray and say, Lord, who knows the hearts of all men, show which of these two thou hast chosen to take the place in ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. So where's that place that we spoke of that Judas has now gone to? Well, it's not explicitly saying Judas has gone to hell. Although within our hymnography, we see it's very much so insinuated that if anyone has, Judas is probably that person. And yet, again, we don't fully know the will of God and the mercy of God. So if God so wills, to forgive Judas, that's up to God. That's not something that we can define for sure. However, again, if there is one person that we see stressed within the tradition of our church as probably being totally separated from God, it's Judas. And so the place that he has gone to is the place of his own making, this field of blood which he has purchased with his blood. And yet, in their choice of who this new apostle is, they see, we see that they cast lots. And Matthias is the one who's enrolled in the eleven. The lot falls to him. So this may seem very strange. What's up with this casting of lots? Well, this is a callback to something that the priests were called to do in Leviticus 27, 21. So within Levitical law, to avoid divination and all of these things that would come up when people would try to define the will of God, it would fall to the priest exclusively in extreme matters to cast lots to define the will of the Lord. Now, this is kind of a last ditch effort type of thing. This isn't something that would be thrown around liberally. So you wouldn't see the priestly class constantly sitting around rolling dice and casting lots to define what the will of the Lord was. But rather, this is something that is reserved for situations just like this. And we see that through prayer, the apostles put all of this in God's hands. And now that we've come the end of this chapter, I think it's important for us to highlight one additional thing that you might be noticing when you look at the icons in our church. And it's that Matthias, 
is not represented with the 12. Rather, St. Paul is there. Now, this might be confusing for us to try to wrap our heads around, because St. Paul is also referred to as an apostle, and yet there are 12. And there are many different explanations that people try to come up with as to why this is the case. Uh, recently, I've heard one which states that, well, Peter in his pride decides to get up here and proclaim who the new apostle would be. He's zealous. He doesn't yet have the spirit. So that's where this decision is made. And although I'm not totally convinced that that is not the case, it seems to me that what's important here is that the will of God is greater than any of our will. Because even though God has chosen Paul to be this apostle, this one who's sent out to the Gentiles, and also even though the apostles get together and say, okay, we need to bring a 12th into the fold, we see that God brings both in while still retaining this number of 12. And we might be sitting here and trying to systematize this and go, okay, well, Matthias, who within our tradition is known as an apostle and dies within Jerusalem, yes, he's an apostle. But when St. Paul comes around, well, he becomes an apostle because one of the other ones is dead by then. James is dead by then. Yet that's not the case at all, because whenever the apostles die, we don't see other apostles being raised to fill their office. This is very distinct, this raising of an apostle to replace Judas. And the reason for that is because Judas has forfeited his role. Judas does not want to carry out his apostolic call, and so there needs to be another one to fill that role. So when we try to systematize and figure out, okay, well, how can there be these 13 apostles and yet we know them as the 12 and why is Matthias not included with the 12 and why is Paul included with the 12 and all of a sudden we try to put all these processes together to explain it. Well, where do we come up? Well, we come up short because it's hard for us to try to wrap our head around the will of God. And yet, as we continue to delve deeper into the tradition, delve into the text, we see that there are reasons that will continue to manifest themselves to us. There are theories. There are plenty of ways at looking at this. But what is central within all of this is that the will of the Lord is there. So this is a reminder to us that whenever we're approaching the scriptures or whenever we're approaching matters in life in general, if we come up and we say, all right, immediately I've looked at this blanket statement. This is the will of God. This is what God is trying to reveal to us without taking a step back and trying to humble ourselves and ask truly, what is it that God is revealing to me? Well, then we're missing the mark, or at least it's very easy for us to. I know I'm sitting here talking to those of you who are sitting in this room, as well as those of you who are listening afterwards, and I tend to ramble, and I tend to speak authoritatively. And yet, I'm also wrestling with the reality that I don't fully know what it is that Christ is trying to reveal to us as we're going through the scriptures. What I'm doing is trying to understand what is popping out to me as we're going through this process. And yet, time and time again, when I go back, I change my mind. I realize maybe I missed the mark or I missed a detail. And it's only through wrestling over and over again with reality, with Christ, that we begin the process of getting to know him through his scriptures, through our life in the church, and through our life in general. But if we say that we know God, 
And if we say that we know the will of God and then we just wash our hands and we say, now we're done, well, then we've missed the mark because we're finite. We're creatures that are born. We exist for a point in time. And then we return to the ground from which we were formed, where God is the creator of all. He's beyond us. And yet he condescends so that way we can know love and serve him. So if we try to put him in a box of our own understanding, well, what are we doing? Well, we're missing the mark. And the reason for that is because we're trying to condense the creator of all into a human being. And yet he's already done that. He's already entered into creation and taken flesh. So that way we can figure out how to know love and serve him. So that way we can enter into a relationship with a person. And so when we try to amplify God, well, we're missing the mark. Why? Because he's already done that to himself. And in doing so, He's transfigured the whole of creation. And in doing so, now we see the path towards true salvation, towards his kingdom. Because as we live a life in Christ and constantly try to define what it is that he's calling for us to do, well, then we live up to the call that we see the church of the first century carrying out. Then we carry out this call of making Christ manifest to all nations through our actions, through our words, and ultimately through the love that we share with one another and the love that we share with the whole of creation. So thank you all for listening to the session of our St. John the Baptist Bible study, Make His Path Straight. It's wonderful to have you all joining me in person and over this podcast format as we begin another book of the scriptures and may St. Luke continue to intercede for us, strengthening us and opening our eyes to the truth, the scriptures. So we, we ultimately may see how it is that Christ is calling us to serve him and love and serve his people. So until next time, we'll talk to you all later. Thank you all for listening to the session of our St. John the Baptist Bible study, Make His Path Straight. Just as a reminder, the point of this Bible study is to invite each of you to gain a deeper appreciation and understanding of the scriptures. So in the coming weeks, I invite you to see for yourself the depth of meaning that they can present to us all. If you're interested in the sources I'm using for this Bible study, links can be found in the description below. Last but not least, as we've been discussing in this Bible study, the scriptures are not separated from our lived tradition as Orthodox Christians. So if you'd like to gain a deeper understanding of what it is to participate in these texts and live the life that Christ calls us to live through the scriptures, I invite each of you listening to join our St. John the Baptist community here in Boston South End every Sunday for Orthros starting at 8.30 a.m. and Divine Liturgy starting around 9.45 a.m. If you don't live in the Boston area, I've also linked in the bio the Directory of Greek Orthodox Churches as a resource so that you can find an Orthodox church near you. As always, thank you for listening and may St. John the Forerunner continue to give us strength as we all set out to draw near to Christ and make his path straight.